God's going to move in a very powerful way. Turn to Genesis chapter 29 this morning, or this evening, not this morning. This morning we were in Revelation chapter 20, but tonight we're in Genesis chapter 29. One of the things that we were not able to do this past summer was our annual teen boot camp that we do, that we've been doing now for about 13 years. And uh, what we do is we go to a camp in the mountains there uh, outside of Las Vegas, New Mexico, and we have a a week-long camp for teens, ages 13 to 18. And uh, the format for the camp is like a boot camp, like a military boot camp. And uh, the DIs, the drill instructors, are pastors in our fellowship of churches who had military experience. And uh, the whole point of the boot camp idea is not to punish kids or anything like that. They don't just send kids there when they're being bad. Uh, The whole idea of the boot camp uh, idea is to basically erase all the fronts. They establish discipline from the very first day when the kids get off the bus. And uh, these kids are doing push-ups and sit-ups and going through the mud pit and and they, they make it rain. That's what the DIs call it when they go to the sand pit and throw the sand up in the air. And the sand gets all over them in their hair and everywhere else. And uh, the kids act like they're about to die, but they're having the time of their lives. If you made an adult do that, they would be dead the first hour. But these kids just go through that and they act like they're dying. And then they get a drink of water and they're ready to go again 100 miles an hour. But anyway, the whole point of the boot camp is just to erase all the fronts everybody's the same. And you've got to understand, these kids aren't forced to go there. They raise money all year to go there. And uh, these drill instructors are all pastors. And these men pray, and they have assistant assistant drill instructors, and there are uh, pastors' wives who serve as assistant drill instructors. And uh, these folks pray for these kids. And during that week, there's some very powerful moments when these kids encounter God. They have, we have church services twice a day. And during those church services, the drill instructors sit in the back. They don't talk to the kids. The kids just concentrate on worship and the, and the preaching of the Word of God. They answer altar calls for salvation, baptism in the Holy Spirit. They, when somebody gets hurt, the kids pray for each other. And they marvel when God does miracles and these kids are healed. But it's an outstanding time. And during that week, inevitably, uh, myself and other pastors who are there are asked if, if we can talk with one of the kids because these kids have opened up about an issue that they're dealing with in life. And they've asked, they say, the drill instructors always stop them and they say, would you like to talk to a pastor? And when they say yes, they'll ask me or one of the other pastors on the staff. And we sit down with these kids and we just let them talk and listen to what they're dealing with in this life. And a lot of these kids look really nice on the outside. They look like they're just nice young teenagers who go to church, but they have a whole world of hurt on the inside. All kinds of issues that they're dealing with. And if there's anything that I've learned over the years doing this boot camp is the grim reminder of the toll that a man's failure has on his children. A man's failure to be a husband and a father. 
to just simply love the mother of his children. That one thing alone. Just that is the difference in the lives of these kids, whether or not dad loves mom. I'm going to read out of the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And we're going to read about a family. The head of that family is a man by the name of Jacob. Because of circumstances beyond his control, he ended up marrying sisters, Leah and Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel, but because of shenanigans on behalf of his father-in-law, he ended up marrying both sisters. And he had two sons. A firstborn son by the name of Reuben with Leah the one sister that he didn't want to marry, and another son, Joseph, by Rachel, the one he did love and wanted to marry. And I'm going to focus in on the two sons because these two boys had everything about their lives uh, that was very uh, much the same. What What was true for one was true for the other. And yet their outcomes were radically different. And the single biggest difference between the two is that for one, dad loved mom. And the other, he didn't. I'm going to read out of Genesis chapter 29, beginning at verse number uh, 16. And we're going to read a story about this family In a sermon I call, Beloved Wife, Beloved Son. And it says this, Now Laban, this is the father-in-law, had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another, another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her, and Laban gave uh, his maid... uh, Zilpah to his daughter Leah as maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And I'm going to stop right there. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to move in a supernatural dimension tonight. That you would minister to lives at the point of their needs. And that you would bring a supernatural grace to bear in the hearts of Reuben. That by your grace, by your love, they indeed would have the heart of Joseph as they're made whole in the name of Jesus. Amen. Beloved wife, beloved son. Now there's a great amount of insight that we can draw from this story in the Bible 
regarding this man Jacob, these two sisters that were married to him, and the two sons that were born uh, to these two wives, these firstborn sons. So I want to kind of set the stage, if you will. Jacob was the son of Isaac. And through uh, circumstances, Jacob had come into disfavor with his brother Esau. Esau was actually threatening his life. And so Isaac said to Jacob, you're going to have to leave, son. You're going to have to be gone for a while. This is what you need to do. You need to go back to the old country and you need to find a wife. And uh, don't come back for a while. So he took off. He ended up back in the old country and he meets Uncle Laban. Laban is his mother's brother. And so he's there and he meets the two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And he falls head over heels for the younger daughter, Rachel. And uh, being a man without much money, uh, he wants to pay the bride price. And he basically says, look, I want to marry your younger daughter uh, and I'll work it off. I'll work for you. And so the guy says, okay. And they agree that he will work seven years, seven years worth of wages as a bride price for Rachel. And so he works the seven years and they fly by because every day he sees her and looks forward to the day when he's going to be able to marry her. And so the day finally comes. Now I want you to imagine this in your mind because this is a true story. The day finally comes. Not only is he anticipating that day, but Rachel is. Seven years. And as the day gets closer and closer, she and her mother and her sister, no doubt, are preparing. No doubt she has a, the dress that she's going to wear. And back then, the, uh, the dress would be very elaborate, the way they dressed. The dress, the, uh, there was very elaborate headpiece. And the, and the veil and the, uh, 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 the jewelry and, and various other things that were a part of it. And all that's being prepared. And so Laban lets the men of the area know that he's going to have a wedding. And of course, everybody comes. And it's a big deal. They have a banquet. And the wine is going to flow. And everybody's going to rejoice. And uh, they prepare. And the day finally comes. And... Rachel is dressed in her finery. They have the, the feast, the, the neighbors come, everybody comes, and everybody's rejoicing. And it comes to that place when the bride and the bridegroom retire to the bridal chamber. This is, uh, it's already dark. And no doubt they've got lots of torches lit, and there's music, and everybody's happy. The wine is flowing, and Jacob retires to the bridal chamber, and Laban, the girl's father, goes to Rachel and says, take off your wedding dress. You can imagine. Rachel is shocked. He summons Leah and says to her, put on the dress. And she puts on her sister's dress. They're both humiliated. Rachel's probably in shock. And they put on the elaborate headdress and the veils and everything. And she's escorted to the bridal chamber. And Jacob is in there. And again, uh, this is nighttime. And everybody's been drinking a little wine. Long story short, 
They go through the consummation of, of the marriage, except in the morning the sun comes up, and uh, the truth is known, and he is mortified. He's shocked. In the early morning, there is this cry, Ah! As he realizes what's been done. And he is not happy. He confronts his father-in-law, and you can go on and read the story. His father-in-law says something like, well, you know, uh, in our culture, uh, the younger can't marry before the elder. So she has to get married first. And that's why I did this. What he was basically doing is getting an heir. He had two daughters. He didn't have a son. He knew that at some point he was going to have to leave what he had to an heir, and the heir would be, was supposed to be, the husband of the elder daughter. But the younger daughter was getting married, not the elder daughter. And this guy Laban was a trickster. He was a man uh, who was not honest. And no doubt he concocted this plan in his head because Jacob was actually a relative. And so that would fit very nicely. He could marry the elder. He's now the heir. And that's why he did all this. But he played havoc with the lives of his daughters. You can just imagine how Rachel felt that night. She probably didn't sleep all night. You can imagine how Leah felt, the humiliation that she felt, because Jacob thought that she was her younger sister. And then the next day when he rejects her, when he realizes who she really is. And so these are the two sisters. So much of their lives is exactly the same. They have the same parents. They grew up in the same household. Uh, and they even end up married to the same guy. But they're completely different in many ways for one reason. One's loved and the other's not. They both have sons. And the lives of their sons have two very different outcomes. For no other reason than one boy has a dad who loves his mom and the other boy does not. And so we're going to examine the two sons. The first was named Reuben. He was the son of Leah, the elder sister. And we're going to read the three times in the scripture where Reuben is mentioned. Him specifically, his life. The first time he's mentioned is in uh, Genesis chapter 29 and verse 32. And it says this. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction." Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And you can hear the heartbreak in her voice. She and her sister are now rivals because of what her father did. And uh, neither one of them has had children yet, and Leah no doubt is praying her heart out, and she conceives, and when she comes due, it's a boy. Back then, they didn't have gender reveal parties. That, that party happened when the baby came. 
And she had a son, and she could not be happier. And she saw this as a blessing of God. She said, God has looked on my affliction. She saw her life of being unloved like a disease, an affliction. God has looked on my affliction and has given me a son. Therefore, maybe now my husband will love me. The name Reuben means, look, a son. As if she wanted Jacob every day when he said his name to be reminded that Leah gave him a son. And so this is the world that Reuben is born into. This world of drama, this world of heartache, because of the relationship between his mother and his father. The years skip ahead, and in Genesis chapter 30, there's a little story about something that happened one day when Reuben was a little boy. And let me set the scene. It's harvest time. And in those days, probably much like today, when the harvest comes in, you've got to get out there in the field and bring in the harvest or you're going to lose it. Back then, they didn't have big combines and big machines. People had to get out there and labor. And so this was harvest time, and everybody was out in the field bringing in the harvest, including little Reuben, a little boy. He's out there doing what he can do. And while he's out there doing what he can do, he discovers something on the ground that he thinks will be a blessing to his mom. Listen to what it says in Genesis 30, verse 14. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for, my, for your son's mandrakes. This is Rachel talking to Leah. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. So let's consider the scene. I know it's, a, it's like a soap opera. It's like a lifetime movie. This little boy is out there in the field helping to bring in the harvest and he looks down and he sees some things on the ground growing. They're called mandrakes. A mandrake is a root. And it was thought that these roots, these mandrakes had medicinal qualities, even supernatural qualities. That's what they thought. They thought that it would help with infant fertility and lots of things like that. They were highly prized and highly valued. And he saw these little mandrakes. These mandrakes actually look like little men, the way they're shaped and they're on the ground. And he takes them up and he runs out of the field. Mama, mama, mama. And uh, look what I found. Look what I found. And Leah sees them and she's very happy. Reuben likes to see his mom happy. It's not very often. And she's happy and she's telling him that he did well. And he's standing there with a smile on his face. He did good. His mom's happy. Maybe his dad's going to be happy. And then Rachel shows up. And Rachel says, give me some of your son's mandrakes. 
and Reuben loses the smile because it's happening again. The drama has started again. This conflict between his mother and her sister. He's caught up in the drama of it all over again. And he has to stand there and listen to his mother bargain for his father's attention. His father's love. Give me your son's mandrakes. And immediately it just comes out of Leah's mouth. Isn't it bad enough that you took my husband? Because Jacob was her husband for seven more years. Seven years without Rachel. He worked another seven years to marry Rachel. Isn't it enough that you took my husband and you want my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel knew that she had the upper hand. For no other reason than Jacob loved her. And she made a bargain. It started out as a request for some of her son's mandrakes. And when they were finished dealing, it was all of her son's mandrakes for one night. Imagine how Reuben felt standing there, just a little boy, and listening to his mother bargain for her husband's affection. That which was so important to him, he's going to make his mom happy. And Rachel's walking away with him. See, this is the world he grew up in. The son of an unloved wife. You see, over time, her rejection became his. And eventually, it settled into this hopeless resentment. A bitterness that settled into his heart. This love-hate relationship with an emotionally distant father. The years pass. And in Genesis 35, we read this very brief account of something that happened that is frankly bizarre. The psychology here is very complicated. One verse, listen to this, in Genesis 35. Reuben's now a grown man. And it happened when Israel, that's his dad, when Israel dwelt in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. That's what it says. Bilhah was the handmaiden of Rachel, concubines. Like I said, this is very complicated psychology. This woman would have been at least 15 years older than him. Because when Leah married Jacob, her father gave her Bilhah as a handmaiden. And she may have been at that point 12 or 13 or so. By the time Reuben was born, she was a teenager. 
And now Reuben's a grown man and he does this. Why? There are a number of reasons why. One is that he's lashing out at Rachel, his mom's rival. Two is he's usurping Jacob's role. He's asserting himself as the heir. Remember, he's the firstborn. He's Jacob's firstborn. And what he's saying is, I'm the firstborn. I'm laying claim to my inheritance. He's very insecure about that, obviously. And it's like he's reaching out. He's asserting his status as the heir. What belongs to my dad is going to belong to me. I'm the one. But in doing that, he sabotaged his relationship with Jacob from that point on. His relationship was never the same with Jacob. We know this because years pass. And when Jacob is on his deathbed, he speaks to his sons. And remember, Reuben is his firstborn. And these are the last words that we have of Jacob speaking to his son Reuben. In Genesis 49.3 it says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. That was the last thing he ever said to his son. You're my firstborn. It's supposed to be about strength. It's supposed to be about excellency of dignity and of power. But it's not. You're unstable as water. Because of what you did. And that's the last thing he said to him. And then he died. I want to talk to you about the other son, Joseph. And it's interesting that when we now think about the other son, and if you know your Bible, you know that the story is way different with him. Joseph was a man blessed of God and used of God. But after seeing Reuben's plight, after hearing Reuben's story, it's almost normal to feel a little bit of resentment toward little Lord Fauntleroy. The little blessed boy. But is it his fault that his dad loved his mom? Listen to what it says about Joseph. Now remember, Rachel was the loved wife, but it was her sister Leah that was having all the babies. And so Rachel was really vexed by this. And she was praying. And finally, it says in Genesis chapter 30, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach 
So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. I want you to consider how different this is. Because she finally conceives and she's expecting and the day comes for delivery and it's a boy. Remember, she really wanted to give Jacob a son. And she is ecstatic. And she names the baby Joseph because she says the Lord shall add to me another son. What does that mean? It means, you know what, this is just the beginning. This is how Rachel saw the life. This is how Rachel saw the future. The future is good. The future is full of blessing. The future is anticipated blessing. You know, that's what the hope is that God gives us. In the world, hope is like a wish. Oh, I wish. I hope. But when you, are, when you give your life to Christ, he gives you a real hope. Amen. And real hope is what? It's the expectation of blessing. You anticipate it. It's there. You don't know what form is going to come in. You know there's going to be good days and bad days, but it's all going to be good in the end. Life is good. The future is full of blessing. And this is how she saw her life. This is just the beginning of blessing. The Lord will add to me another son. And Joseph was loved by his father. Joseph had his father's favor. He inherited that sense of hope. He inherited that sense of expectation of blessing. Life was good. The Bible says that his dad gave him a coat of many colors. Now remember, Joseph had 11 brothers and a sister when it was all said and done. And the Bible says that his father gave him this coat of many colors. It means a coat of manifold colors. And he wore this coat with a sense of pride. He was proud to be his father's son. He was proud that people knew that Jacob was his father. And he wore that garment. He wore his father's love like a garment. And he had an expectation of blessing about the future. He was proud to be his father's son, and it gave him confidence in his father's God. When you read the story of Joseph, you read about a young man who has visions that God gives him. Dreams that God gives him about the future. And these dreams tell him that one day God is going to use him for something special. God is going to raise him up. God's going to move through his life to do some important work. And he understands this and he shares this with his family. And they're not quite as excited as he is about that. But this is his life. He's loved. Life is good. The future is full of hope. He trusts his dad. He trusts his father's God. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, you know it wasn't all peaches and cream for him in terms of circumstance. The day came when his father sent him out to find his brothers who were out with the flocks and the herds. And when they saw him coming across the field, they concocted a plan to kill him. 
because they were jealous of him. They took him, they took the coat off of him, they tore it up, they put goat blood on it to concoct a lie to tell their dad that it, they found it that way, so poor Joseph was probably attacked by a lion or something. And they were going to kill him. There was a pit, an empty well, and they threw him down into the pit. And they were contemplating murder, but one of his brothers speaks up and says, no, it was actually Reuben, of all people, and says, no, we're not going to kill him. Just at that moment, some traders were coming down the road, and they pulled their brother out of the pit and sold him to them as a slave. And they bound him. They're leading him away, and he's looking back at his brothers. They just sold him as a slave. He was taken into Egypt. He was at a slave market, and a man by the name of Potiphar buys him to work in his household. You can only imagine what that would have been like. The fear, the heartache, the apprehension. God, where are you? But you know what? Because of the work that God had done in this boy's life, he still had a confidence in God, his father's God. He had such a confidence in God that God was still in control, that he worked hard and God blessed his labors so that this man Potiphar put him in charge of his whole house. And Potiphar prospered because of Joseph. And then something happened. Potiphar's wife, I was going to use an adjective, but I decided not to. Potiphar's wife repeatedly tried to seduce him. He's just a slave. But he's a man of God. And he refuses. And on one occasion, she's being particularly aggressive and grabs his coat, his outer garment, and he just leaves it there and runs. Smart man. But she's got his garment, and when her husband comes home, she says, he tried to rape me. Now, he's a slave. Potiphar is a very powerful government official. He's actually in charge of the prisons. If Potiphar had believed her, Joseph would have died that day. But he didn't kill Joseph because he knew she was lying, and he just simply put him in prison because he was just a slave. He couldn't say, you're a liar, Joseph, go back to your work. He couldn't end it that way. He had to do something. And he put him in prison. He was in prison for years. Never charged, never tried, never convicted. He was just a slave. But even then, he had such confidence in his father's God that God was still in control. That they made him the chief steward over the entire prison. He ran the prison as a prisoner. And there were a couple of prisoners who were in there, and uh, they put their confidence in Joseph, and uh, he had some dreams. There were some dreams, rather, he interpreted for these two men that came to pass. 
Long story short, Pharaoh, the king, had a dream. And he was very troubled by it, and he had all of his wise men try to interpret the dream. And one of the king's servants who had been in prison and got out of prison said, You know what? There's a man in there who interprets dreams. And so Pharaoh said, Bring him. And one day, Joseph is in prison. He's going about his daily routine when suddenly servants from the palace show up to the prison and they say, are you Joseph the Hebrew? Yeah, come with us. They took him, they stripped him down and bathed him because he probably hadn't had a decent bath in years. They scrubbed him, they shaved off his beard, they cut his hair. They put on fresh clothes worthy of a king's court. And they led him into Pharaoh. I mean, he woke up that morning, a slave in prison, wondering if he would ever get out. And within a few hours, he's standing before the most powerful man in the world. And the king shares his dream, and Joseph gives him the interpretation of the dream. He says basically this, God is showing you that you're going to have seven years of great blessing, followed by seven years of great famine. And so you need to appoint somebody who's got his act together to set aside one-fifth of what comes in in the good years so that you have enough to provide for you and your nation during those bad years. And the king said, that sounds like good advice. You've got the job. And so just like that, prisoner, slave, one morning, before the day is over, he's prime minister in the most powerful country in the world, literally controlling the economy of the most powerful nation in the world. All of a sudden, the visions that he had as a young man start to make sense. And by his actions, God saves not just the nation of Egypt, but his dad and all of his brothers and their families as famine hits where they live and they're able to relocate to Egypt and their lives are spared because of Joseph. God's purpose in the earth is preserved because of this man, Joseph. Pharaoh is so pleased with the job that he's doing. The Bible says he gives Joseph a wife. And by this wife, he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Bible goes on to tell us that these two sons became patriarchs in Israel. In other words, instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, there's a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh, his two sons. It's double. What that means is he's the one who received the blessing of the firstborn, not Reuben. He got the double portion. His two sons became full tribes in the house of Israel. And his life became God's instrument to save. To save Egypt, to save the nations round about them, to save his father's house. And you can trace it all back to his father's love for his mother. See, the point of this 
is the power of a father's love. Now, I understand when I preach this that many, if not most, of the people who hear me preach are not Joseph. They're Reuben. And you listen to me preach and you say, you know what, that's powerful, but what good does that do me? The point is that the Father's love can change us from the broken heart of Reuben to the whole heart of Joseph. Your pastor was introducing me tonight and he didn't know what I was preaching. He began to talk about his own testimony. About how he grew up without his father. And the anger that he felt and the path that he was on. He was Reuben. But look at him now. The blessing on his house. The blessing on this house. Because the love of the Father gives us the heart of Joseph. Let me close with one important thought. And that is that there is hope for those who are unloved. Jesus came to reveal the Father. That's what he said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. He came to reveal the Father. He came to bring us to His Father because it's His Father's love that will change us. It's His Father's love that transforms us. But let me tell you something. He loves us. But there are lots of people in this world that may never love you. You can't make somebody love you. And I'm going to tell you the truth tonight. If your earthly father hasn't loved you up until now, he probably never will. And I say that because people who live without the love of their earthly father, even into their adult years, harbor this torturing little fantasy that somehow, someway, someday, that's going to change. But it may never change. I have a friend of mine who's now in his 70s. His father passed away some months back in his 90s. This man that I'm talking about played football and excelled in high school because he wanted to impress his dad. He wanted his dad to say, I'm proud of you, son. This man joined the Navy and became a Navy SEAL. Did two tours in Vietnam. 
He got injured in battle, spent four months in a Japanese hospital to the point where they had told his mother, the military, that he had died in action, but it wasn't true. He was in a coma for four months. And afterward, he made a phone call that obviously shook up his mother big time. Hi, Mom, it's me. But you know, when he graduated from basic training with the Navy, when he graduated from the SEAL training, his uncle was there, but not his dad. Over the course of his life, and even after he became a Christian, every Father's Day, he'd send his father a card, he'd call his father on the phone, say, Happy Father's Day. He never heard his father say, son, I love you, appreciate you. And I was sitting some months ago before the COVID thing hit, I think, or right after. We're having coffee. And he said he got a phone call from his brother out of the blue. They're not close. And he said, dad died. When? Well, a few days ago. Well, how come nobody told me? Well, I'm telling you now. He said, well, I appreciate that, I guess. He said, the reason I'm calling is because of what dad said. He said, what? Because his dad was in his 90s. His dad was in a coma. Slept most of the time. He was in a, a hospice. But this brother said that he and his sister were sitting there at the bedside because they knew that the father was going to pass away. They'd have to get all of his affairs in order and take care of all of that. And he said they were sitting there and his father woke up and looked at them and said, tell him I was a rotten father. And he went back to sleep and he died. And they both knew what he was talking about. Now, I know that sounds like too little too late. But it was a gift to this man from his father. You can't make somebody love you. And if you have an earthly father that hasn't loved you, he may never love you. But that doesn't mean that you can't choose to love. And this is a lesson that we learn from both of these people in the story, Leah and her son, Reuben. You see, Leah was rejected. Leah was brokenhearted. You could hear it in her voice, the things that she would say. But somewhere along the line, this woman made up her mind that she can't make Jacob love her. And she was not going to let that poison her for the rest of her life. She made up her mind that she was going to love anyway. And so she did. Jacob was just an old grouch. She loved him anyway. She loved her children. She loved her grandchildren. She chose to love. Anyway, Reuben, even though he resented Joseph, on that day when his other brothers were going to kill him, he, he intervened and said no. 
We're not going to do that. Later, when they discovered that their long-lost brother had risen to the place where he was now prime minister of Egypt and was providing for them, it was Reuben who took responsibility for everything that happened. Because you can't make somebody love you. But that doesn't keep you from choosing to love. You see, we're not, we're not uh, justified in rejecting other people because we've been rejected. Just because someone will not love us doesn't mean that we can't love others. Jesus requires us to love others even though we've been rejected. You know why? Because Jesus did that for us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he died there on that cross for a world that was killing him. We're required to love. This woman, Leah, just decided she was going to love Jacob anyway. You know how I know that she did? Because in the Bible... Something happens in the story. One day, suddenly, she had Jacob to herself. Her sister Rachel died in childbirth. And just like that, they were traveling at the time. Rachel came full term. She died giving birth to a son named Benjamin. Jacob had to arrange for a tomb where they were situated at the moment and they moved on. And just like that, Leah had Jacob to herself. If she had been filled with bitterness and anger, that relationship would have iced over. There would have been no hope for it. But apparently, she was willing to love this guy anyway. And just like that, God gave her back her husband and apparently it wasn't so bad because at the end of Jacob's life he's giving instructions to his sons as to where he's going to be buried and you can read about it yourself sometime in Genesis 49 but he says bury me with Leah You know what else is interesting to me? As a pastor, as somebody who studies the Word of God, about 500 years later, this little band of people, a few families, with Jacob and his 12 sons, there are about 75 of them in total. In Egypt, they became a nation. I mean, of three or four million people. And one day, a man comes along by the name of Moses, who becomes God's instrument to deliver them out of slavery, because they had become slaves, and to deliver them out of Egypt to become a nation that will serve God. And when they came out of Egypt into the wilderness, God called this man Moses up on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, where he spoke to Moses and said, write this down. And Moses wrote down what we know as the law. 
And you can read about it yourself in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible talk extensively about what God told Moses. Matter of fact, he told Moses to write most of that. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is 500 years after the fact. Deuteronomy 21 verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved. Sound familiar? Then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. That was five centuries later. Because God never forgot. When Reuben felt like he was all alone in the world, God saw him. And God remembered him. And when the day came, when he had a man write down the law, he says, oh, and by the way, Write this down, Moses. Because that's not going to happen again. See, we're talking about the power of the Father's love. The power that it has in a heart that receives that love, but also the devastating effect that it has on a heart that is deprived that love. And of course, the point is, that Jesus came to reveal the Father's love. I want you to bow your heads.